in Los Angeles, like the gigs that I would be competing for as a sideman, it's like, there were these little children that were just like shredding me out the door. I was like, no, this isn't fun. So I put that aside and I really focused on the Charlie Christian thing, which I'd already always really loved. And then at a certain point, I really started trying to dig more into the chord melody, the acoustic chord melody thing coming from guys like Carl Kress and Dick McDonough and George Van Epps and obviously Alan Roos. With that kind of stuff, like there are Charlie Christian transcriptions available and I had learned a bunch of them and I'd really worked that vocabulary into my playing. But the Alan Roos stuff, there's nothing out there. There's almost nothing out there. And what little I found was was mostly wrong or, or at least wrong in a way that like hid the meaning and hid the kind of structure of it. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Hot Jazz Network podcast. Today on our show, we have an incredible guitarist, but he's much more than that. He's a historian. And I personally feel that his left pinky should be enshrined in the Smithsonian. He's shining a light on guitarists like Alan Roos, Eddie Lang, Freddie Green, and much, much more. Folks, you're going to love it. Here he is, Jonathan Stout. Let's take a ride out to Riverside Drive To a place before your mom and dad were alive Jonathan, it's so great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. What a delight. This is a, a rare treat, and we're really looking forward to um, getting into how to, how do you say, ner the nerdery of it all. That, I, that is exactly what it is. I, I just want to thank you on, on behalf of all the guitar players in the world for, for making jazz guitar fun again and for being such a leading light, someone that we can all, I'm, I'm totally serious. I, I know you are. And I, I'm just, I, I, that is the nicest thing anyone's ever said. Thank you so well, much. It, it's very heartfelt. I, I listened to your fretboard journal. I, I love fretboard journal, of course. And I, I listened too. to your interview with Jason. And so you're a, you're a um, millennial with aspersions to being a Gen Z and I'm a boomer that is a, more of a, a Gen Z or so. It's, I think we'll meet in the middle there. But, you know, having started my music journey a long time ago, getting into George Benson and being into so many jazz things, I saw the same movie that you did, The Sweet and Lowdown. That, that changed my life. I kept going back to the movie theater to see it again and again. And it was so profound to me. And um, I probably wouldn't be here speaking with you today. If not for that movie. Oh yeah, that that's that was exactly what it was for me. It was the thing that crystallized sort of a relative interest in jazz and old swing things from being from learning how to swing dance and was like, oh, the chocolate and the peanut butter should go together. Oh my gosh. You mean if you put them in one thing and you have them together, guitar and the swing? Oh my goodness. That movie did so much for and so many guitar players. You get into the Django thing, which is gonna eventually lead you ladies and gentlemen, to Jonathan Stout and what he's doing in that amazing little finger of his. Yeah. And there's so much to talk about. I, I hope we don't have to do it. I mean, it'd be super fun to do a part two, but all the Alan Roos stuff and, you know, the Freddie Green and the this and the that and the yada. First, let, let's start at the beginning. Where were you born? Uh, Los Angeles. And I've uh, been here my whole life. Okay. Well, what's your father's name? 
<laughs> are these my the questions to get my security password for the for my no, credit no, card? They're, no, they're not, and they're not written down. It's just I I like to do, even though I'm not a, a millennial. I have a son that's a a, a Gen Zer, but um, you know, with what we might call a deep dive. So any, yeah. anyway, we want to get into some of the, sure. uh, the some of your history. What what's your yeah. father's name? Well, real quick, then I'll I'll be even more specific. I was born in in the San Fernando Valley, and I grew up at, there in in the valley, and and basically went to college and and everything here in Los Angeles. So I never left and I'm in Pasadena now. My dad's name was Richard Pennington Stout Jr. And I was very nearly, thank God though, very nearly Richard Pennington Stout the third. You almost have to go <laughs> afterwards just for the ridiculous, you know. <laughs> he, um, is he still with us? Is he still alive? No, but he was, uh, he was a really great supporter of my guitar playing because oh. he was not a musician. His brother, my uncle David, is a great composer and arranger and trombone player and has played my big band and stuff and was a great influence all along my career. But my dad wasn't particularly gifted as a musician, but he enjoyed music. And it was funny because he was so proud and supportive of it. When I was in a rock band in high school, he and the dad of the drummer, they were roadie number one and roadie number two. <laughs> and, and so all along... He really supported it. And one of, one of the, the cool habits that we had is uh, he loved to drive. He was a car guy and uh, he loved to drive. And so we would go on these weekend drives where it would just be me and him and we'd drive and I would navigate, but I would listen to records, you know, CDs by that point, but listen to, to albums on the journey. And there was so much time spent in that car, just listening to these kind of formative influences none of them jazz of course at the time but that's where i like listen to metallica or black sabbath or van halen or whatever 90s alternative rock it was at the time that's where i digested so much he was born in 1945 i don't know that like the Courant alternative rock of 1995 was really that interesting to him but he suffered through it and that was this great support thing that he gave me this space to kind of listen to music and we could just sit with it my parents didn't want to buy me a guitar because they were worried I wouldn't stick with it. And that's a very common thing. You buy a kid a guitar and then they play it for two seconds and they don't do it. I said, well, if you want to take lessons, we'll rent you a guitar. And if you stick with it long enough, you know, then we can think about buying one, but we'll rent you one week to week. You take lessons. And after like the first week and I was like already sticking with it, we went to the, the record store, the warehouse record store, and he, he bought on tape the soundtrack to the film Jimi Hendrix because he wanted to play me the Jimi Hendrix Star Spangled Banner because he was like, you need to be aware of what this thing is capable of, that it's not just this thing that's capable of powerful symbolism and art and what a power move. That's <laughs> so, like, that is so beautiful. And he was listening to your music through, through you. He, want, he wanted the best for you and he was just listening to all your new music and wanted to turn you on to something as powerful as Hendrix. and. If you're a guitar player, there's you can't escape these guys. Hendrix, Django. For me, it's, I go all the way back to Nick Lucas. I, I love Nick Lucas very much because I'm a singer. And he, I think he had a beautiful voice. He could sure tease those frets. And he could tease the frets. That's right. You know, and I believe he um, had the first in, instruction book or the little triangular picks, the Nick Lucas picks. I think I actually had a, a couple of those when I bought an old guitar. But anyway, we're getting a little bit ahead. It's my fault. 
get a little bit ahead of the story. So um, your mother and what was her name? What is my, her name? My mother's name is Vittoria Generali Stout, and she was born and raised in Naples, Italy. And she met my dad when he was an American service member there in, in the late 60s in the Navy. And uh, she is a trained Neapolitan couturier. So she is someone that makes and designs dresses from scratch just for my, her idea. And she looks at a one of these clients, she would have these very wealthy ladies that would come over to the house and she would design clothes for them, draw it, tell them what it was going to be. And then she would make the garment by herself from scratch. Seamstress is the word that people throw around, but that doesn't really, that that's not really quite right. Like couturier, even though that's not a word people use in America all that often. Well, couture um, is, is yeah. thrown around quite a bit. Yeah. But the, the kind of boots on the ground version of haute couture when it's not a designer with a team is one person bespoke tailoring is something we say regarding menswear, but that's basically what she was doing. I grew up with like fashion magazines on the coffee table. And like, I can remember as like a, like an eight or eight year old being like, oh, Jean-Paul Gaultier, he's the one with the pointy boobs on the cover of the magazine. That, <laughs> like, that is funny. Now, <laughs> is your, is your mother still alive? Is she, she still is. Alive? Oh, great. She is. She must and, be very, and, very proud of you. Yeah. And another just like really wonderful, supportive influence. It was unusual. My parents divorced when I was three, but they actually managed to get back together 10 years wow. later, which is a very wow. unusual thing. But she was a hardcore MFer. I like, she's a real, she's <laughs> a real, uh, just such a force of nature and was so amazing. And as a single woman with like, even then maybe 15, 20 years in the country, her English was not as good as it would eventually become. And she managed as a single mom to buy a house, raise me for many years. And my dad was always around. There are many people who couldn't have pulled off what she did and saved and did all these things. But we ended up in this townhouse condominium and uh, it's like a row home where there's vertical units stacked next to each other. And it just so happened we were on the end. My bedroom was on the end to the wall so that there was no neighbor on the other side of the wall, there was a, a alleyway. And then, and when I got that half stack, I could crank it and play when I got a drum set at, at some point and later in, in high school, I could practice that too. The, the level of foresight that was totally unintentional, but per worked out perfectly was great. And she never once, never once told me to turn it down. Never once said, don't, please don't never said, oh, could you stop? You're driving me nuts. And as the parent of a seven-year-old now, I have failed that particular challenge on an almost daily basis. <laughs> the emotional scarring that I've probably done uh, compared to what my parents did, I'll probably never live down. But yeah, my mom has just been always been the most supportive of influences. It was the same kind of thing where my dad was like, you know, he was, he was too old to be a hippie. He was just a little, a little too old to be in that kind of prime Hendrix demographic, but he was a kind of aware of what it was, sure. even if he was a little he wasn't in San Francisco in the summer of 67 at Monterey Pop, like other people I've run into. But my mom, similarly, when I was going through the alternative rock, punk rock phases, like she's like, sure, we'll get some, some punky color and dye your hair. Sure. Do it with me. You know? <laughs> but that's like, great. That's great. You're so fortunate. Gosh, it sounds like you had a pretty idyllic childhood in some ways. Maybe not perfect because your parents weren't together, but they got back together. That's amazing. Yeah. And it was funny because... I bristled at that much as the way somebody would have bristled at them breaking up at that point in my, I was like a 13 or 14 year old, I guess. I was uh, full of angst and all the teenage whatevers. And it's like, oh, dad's more strict than mom. I don't want him to live, move back home. That's going to, that's going to put a real, that's going to harsh my hang, man. 
But I remember we went, they sent me to a therapist and after two sessions, she's like, it's going to be fine. This is a waste of pure fun. Don't worry about it. And uh, I don't think my therapist thinks that now, but, but back then it was like, no, everything's fine. We all have the challenges that we have, but I try to be really aware of how grateful I am for both of them individually and together and just aware of the privileges that they and the other members of my family have allowed me to have my uncle David being a musician and somebody that he was teaching me in high school, how to write a big band chart and how to do, how to do mechanical voicing. And, uh, you know, that's something that I didn't use right away, but five years later, I'm like working on big band charts myself. And I'm like, oh, this is exactly what my uncle David taught me. Like, how handy is this? So I've been really lucky. Are you doing your own charts and arrangements now? So from the beginning of my kind of main band, the Campus Five, which is Two Horns, I've done almost all of those charts myself. I have had to ask for help at times for things I couldn't figure out or transcribe. At the beginning, especially most of it was all unison and octave writing. So it's not like there was some any harmonization to do. When it came to the big band, I mostly at first had bought stock arrangements that were publicly available. There's gray market of scans of old 20s, 30s, 40s arrangements that would have been sold in a music store back then. Stocky, so, you know, stockies, we call, we call them stockies. Ex- exactly. I tried to get out of that as quickly as I could. I recognized very quickly the thing about those arrangements is they were written for a band that probably couldn't play that well. So they were really overwritten. They would have extra stuff in them. So that if you didn't have anybody who could really blow solos, you could just play another ensemble. But the goal of them wasn't to play them as written. The goal was to like pencil them up and go, okay, this bridge ensemble, let's take that out and make that a trombone solo. Okay. Oh, we got a great clarinet player. Oh, let's put a, put him here. Then there would always be like, if it was a, a toony tune, not like a riff tune, but like a toony tune with changes, it'd be at, at least two different keys. So if your singer could sing in either one of those keys, and often it would be like the typical female vocal, and the typical male vocal key, you either go, okay, they're going to sing the first chorus or they're going to wait till the modulation and then come in and sing the third chorus. But the goal was that you would modify them to your needs. Um, but also I, I have this thing about when I think of a song much in a very kind of modern way, in a rock way, I don't think about Stella by Starlight as being Stella by Starlight and just to, as a tune. When I think of a tune, I think of flying home. You're like, which one? Uh, the 39 uh, Bed, Bed Goodman Sextet recording, the 42 Lionel Hampton, which later Lionel Hampton, flying home number two, which specific? Because they're like, it's like saying crossroads. Oh, wait, which one? The cream one or, or, like the, Robert, the, or the Robert Johnson? Kids out there, folks out there listening, I want you to pay close attention. What he's talking about is doctoring the charts. And this is what Vince Giordano and I spoke about when I went to see him at Birdland just a couple months ago. We were talking about doctoring charts because he, when he sings, he's a baritone. He's got a team of people working on these things because a lot of those original recordings, the voices were pitched higher than his natural voice, a tenor singing. So me being a baritone as well, Don Neely gave me 2,300 charts. In, in, in my ISO, what used to be my ISO booth over there, is uh, 2,300, and the, it smells a very particular way because of all that old paper and stuff. And I'm so grateful to, to have this, but no, the, the charts, when you look at a chart, you think, what am I going to change? How am I going to change it to make, make it more effective for me so I can, me and my band, the players I have, how can we render this? Yeah. And on the other side, it wasn't just taking stocks. 
but also finding what transcriptions had been done that were actually accurate to the real thing and not say something that they hired an arranger to to do a version of a hit of. And because I'd come from the swing dance community and that's, I later came to realize that's primarily a DJ culture and has been for about 40 or 50 years. So like when you say the version of a tune, you're being relatively specific. So I don't want to play Jumpin' at the Woodside. I want to play the 1938 Jumpin' at the Woodside because that's the particular one. From the very first gig, Dean Mora, who used to lead Mora's Modern Rhythmus, who was sort of our Los Angeles version of a Vince Giordano or a Don Neely, they had a killing band at the kind of um, swing revival days that would play every Monday night at the Derby. And I was actually too young to go. But Say the name again, please. Dean Mora, M-O-R-A, and his Modern Rhythmists. One of my heroes, John Reynolds, was the guitar player in that band for many years playing his national. But but Dean was a really formative influence watching the way he would treat all this music with real reverence and authenticity and which I have a little asterisk next to because we're not actually in 1939 and that's probably a good thing. But noting that (laughs) he was a really good influence because he would talk about who the arrangers were and give little factoids and set the context of the music. And that's something that I've I've also continued to do when I'm performing live, but we asked Dean, Hey, could you, could we pay you to transcribe Artie Shaw's man from Mars and Artie Shaw's man from Mars is a tune Artie never recorded, but it was captured on a, on an air check and it had become sort of a signature song among many swing dancers, but it was the kind of thing that jazz nerds couldn't care less about. It wasn't the 78 collectors that were necessarily into it. It was these swing dancers that had really made this like a popular song and the head of the tune is mostly just Artie blowing over a, a D minor vamp. You've got to transcribe at least several bars of the Artie clarinet solo, because otherwise it, it's not going to sound like Man from Mars. But he was know? so good. He's such a, such a great player. And, his, and yeah. his life story is so interesting. What a smart, erudite guy. I mean, he had interesting taste in, in women folk as well. He's, <laughs> he's, yeah. he's Artie Shaw. I mean, he's like this larger, he, he was long lived. Yeah. And fam- and famously kind of a jerk in a lot of ways. And, but it's the, it's the jerk in the ways that, especially in hindsight, we go, huh, oh, you did have a point there. Every superhero has an origin story and I'm trying to get yours memorialized here. So what music was playing in the house when you were growing up? What were your parents listening to? Not a ton that I remember from my dad specifically, but I know we had this Chuck Berry tape and it was an Italian cassette that my mom had gotten in Italy. So I remember growing up with Chuck Berry and obviously like when Back to the Future came out, um, uh, I saw it on on video after the year after it had come out and seeing the the Johnny B. Good scene. That was a very formative thing. Sure. But through most of my childhood, it, they didn't really have particularly strong musical, a musical stamp. And I was listening to the pop music of the day and the top 40. But I had this friend in elementary school right around fifth, sixth grade who got into rock music from probably from his older brother. It was before he had preset radio stations. So he had moved my dial to the heavy metal station and I couldn't seem to get it back perfectly to the other one. So I just gave up and left it on the heavy metal station. And I just started listening to that. And, and that was right around 1991, 92. So just before grunge had broken big. So I got the last gasp of heavy metal, but like Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 had come out and, and the Metallica Black album. And I got both of those for my birthday on tape that year. And that was a very formative thing. Sure. And then I remembered like after I started playing guitar, it was like uh, fall, I think of 92. And uh, I got for that Christmas, 
I was hoping to get a guitar and I remember my mom had this really big box, but it was not a guitar shaped box. She let me open it the day before as a big thing. And it was a new CD player stereo system for the house, not for my room or anything, but, and she let me open two CDs and it was two CDs that I asked for. And it was Pearl Jam and Joe Satriani's The Extremist. So I had my grunge and I had my instrumental shred metal. You're all set. And, and what was your first guitar? My first guitar arrived the next day when my dad came over to join us on Christmas morning and he's all oh, got to get one more thing out of the car. And he comes out carrying a guitar shaped, a guitar case shaped thing wrapped. And I was like, oh, cause I thought I didn't, I wasn't going to get a guitar after all. And I was like, bummed. It was a PV Predator, which was a Strat copy. And I sure. think at the time the salesman hadn't been lying when he said that it was of better quality than the comparable Fender or Squire product at that price point. I don't know that's the case anymore because I think cheap guitars are way better than they have any right to be anymore. That's um, right. That's cheap right. guitars in a good setup and call it a day. <laughs> Too bad they don't make cheap L5s. I have a lore that they gave oh, me. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. I'm not going to use it for firewood anytime soon. They're nice people. So since you mentioned Joe Satriani, I've got to tell you this Kirk Hammett story because I know you're a fan. So I studied with Joe Satriani in the 80s on what was then called Grove Street here in Berkeley at the time. And now it's called a Martin Luther King. I would go there for my weekly lesson with Joe and he was a wonderful person and wonderful teacher. And we're, we're still friendly acquaintances to this day. And Kirk Hammett's lesson was right before mine. And we never, <laughs> we never spoke much. We just gave a nod. Like, hey, you're here for your lesson, here for your lesson. And one time they were going over time and I heard all this crazy laughter from the teaching room and I just couldn't resist. So I went in and stuck my head in and said, what could Satriani and Kirk? I said, what is so funny? And they had just got, I think Kirk probably brought it in, Ingve Malmsteen's bedroom, oh, yeah. bedroom demo tape where he plays all the thing. And I said, what, what, what's so funny? And Joe said, obviously it's sped up. But then he said, but if it's not, I could watch him play all day. And as we know, it wasn't sped up. He just had that real fast vibrato. But that was, that's my story there. Joe sucks for you. But anyway, we're it. here today not for me to talk about my funny stories. We're here to talk about you. You've got a guitar. You've got your influences. What happens next? Like a lot of kids who find out later in life they had ADHD the whole time, I hyper-focused the crap out of the guitar. And I and right right before then, I had actually started going to a different elementary school that I was bused to. I'd gotten into a magnet school for highly gifted kids. And I basically lost track of the neighborhood kids because I wasn't going to school with them anymore. And I wasn't going out to play. I was just sitting there playing my guitar because we were all bust in the city of Los Angeles. Like some of your friends that you see in school every day could literally live on the other side of town. And that's an hour and a half away in traffic. So it just worked out perfectly. I had all of this free time and kind of isolation in a way. And then I had this thing that I could put my energy into. And so as the nineties progressed and there was a various genre things that came in, punk broke big again, and there was a ska revival and there was goth and there was electronic revival and there was industrial rock and there's all these things. I kind of went through all of those things. And the thing I was, I'm not going to say I'm like a metalhead. I'm glad I happened to latch onto Metallica at the, the very first thing, because unlike some of my friends who started later, they were content to play power chords and call it a day where I wanted to be able to play the solos from some of those Metallica songs that Kirk had played. And so I just wanted to be able to play proficiently. And for, like I said, for some of my other friends, like they did, it didn't matter to them. And so they didn't bother. I think that I really owe a debt to that, that little quirk of timing. 
but yeah, so I went through playing in, in, in a rock band in high school with some friends. We were basically sounded like a Nirvana cover band. And then what, what was like the name? What was the name of that band? Mendacity. Of course it was. Of course it was. Yeah. We made two demos, like somebody's project studio in the Valley and, and the other guitar player in the band, his uncle was actually Andrew Gold. Oh, it's Andrew Gold. People do not know about Andrew Gold. Super talented singer, songwriter, arranger, Linda Ronstadt. My gosh, he he died. The Golden Girls theme and Lonely Boy. And he did did a yeah, he did a bunch of studio production work and TV themes and sort of other kind of incidental music at his house. So he was always working. And I remember we went over there one time to do some overdubs. Wow. And he was a big bird's head. So he had all these like Rick and Backers on the wall. And sure. And it was a cool thing. But, you know, we got to actually make music. We like played one night at the Whiskey A Go-Go, which was more of a pay-to-play situation. But like, yeah. you know, we were doing the rock thing. But the real kind of thing that happened, the incident, inciting incident was, um, believe it or not, being goth industrial, not exactly a hit with the ladies. And I hoped guitar would help with that. That, would, that was one of the things I thought it would be good at. Now, all, the chicks go to, all the chicks are into prog rock. Oh, yeah, obviously. I've seen those demographics. <laughs> But my Spanish teacher had sort of arranged tango lessons the year before as an extracurricular because this magnet school is all these highly gifted kids. These are the nerdiest of the nerdy, the most socially awkward, and they're all sort of bust from all over. So they've all been plucked out of the school that they've been going to for years and their local friends and they're thrown together with this motley crew. And to this day, those are still my core friend group from that high school and that, that even actually elementary, junior, all those kids that were in that, that, that pipeline. She'd done tango lessons, which was vaguely extracurricular for Spanish language, but she'd gotten bored of it so that the next year she did swing lessons. And that was right before the kind of big revival broke big in the public eye. And so the people that were teaching those lessons were some of the people that were innovating and rediscovering kind of original era swing music and swing dancing and not just like what you would be taught at a ballroom dance studio. That was really the big thing because I'd started swing dancing. I immediately got into jazz just in general and I did get a swing CD and I listened to that and, and then, but then I also got kind of blue and I got Miles Davis's round about midnight and then you get blue train and giant steps and you do jazz 101 with it. And I really gravitated in that sort of late high school phase to Grant Green and Kenny Burrell and that kind of blue note, hard bop sound when I'm at leave, I'm about to go to college and by some quirk of a thing, I basically didn't get into the colleges I thought I was going to get into. And the, my choices were USC or, or UC Santa Barbara. And trust me, I, I get that it's a privileged thing to say, oh, those that was below what I wanted to get into. But like literally every one of my friends, if they didn't get into an Ivy or something otherwise great, they just went to Cal. And I was like, That's, I didn't even get into UCLA because it was just a weird quirk. And so I was at USC. And when I went to the to look at USC... I found out they had a studio jazz guitar program. And I thought I was just going to get a history degree and go to law school, which is what happened. But I was like, wait a second, I can, I can do guitar too. That'll be fun. Amusingly, it wasn't fun even a little bit. It really sucked the joy out of it. I I am am so sorry. You know what though? It was a school for, for training people to be professional gigging musicians and the studio jazz guitar program, at least at the time, and I don't know if this is still the same today, but I, I hope not. It was not part of the regular jazz school. It was its own thing. And it was a redheaded stepchild of the jazz school because you weren't really like a real jazzer. 
And a lot of the students were like shred guys or jam band guys, which sure. is fine. But like I was there for like the Grant Green and the Kenny Burrell and the, the hard bop. And they had people like Frank Potenza teaching. And I was like, this is great. Like, I want to go study with him. But I wasn't aspiring to be a professional musician. And so I didn't know how to transcribe solos. And I wouldn't learn that for years, uh, much to my, my own detriment. So like when I finally got to take one semester of lessons with Frank, I, I, I couldn't do anything with it because I couldn't transcribe this. So I could do the like, like the kind of bluesy part of the Grant Green, Kenny Burrell stuff, but I couldn't do the bebop part because I, can't, I couldn't transcribe Charlie Parker or those guys playing Parker-y ideas. While I was in that school, I'd also run into sort of the campus swing club one of the people that was in that is somebody that's I just saw last weekend and has, has been like world Lindy Hop champion is, and is still a, a national and internationally famous swing instructor. And basically, we started going dancing together seven nights a week, carpooling. As my interest in guitar got bred out of me by kind of not really enjoying that guitar program, my interest in swing dancing took over. And so by the end of that first year of college, I was like, I'm going to quit this program. I'm not having any fun. I don't even want to play guitar anymore. I'm, I'm out. I'm done. Uh, I'm just not, I'm not gonna play guitar anymore, but I was swing dancing seven nights a week. I'd met the woman that would become my wife and we were started dating and it was like on that path. And then one month into summer vacation, we were at sweet and lowdown and then boom, the chocolate and the peanut butter go together. It's oh wait, I do play guitar. Maybe instead of trying to play later styles of jazz, we should try and play earlier styles of jazz, like the stuff I actually listened to. You know, I've seen some clips of you playing the, the Django stuff. So you did study that for a while and it's, it's in there. Amusingly, I don't know if you've come across the nomenclatural issue, but from what I have been told by people in the kind of minutiae world, that gypsy jazz is actually the preferred nomenclature to people of Romani descent and that they actually, that's fine with them. Noted that's, that, that's not a great term otherwise, but in this case, that group actually prefers it. I say that because there's that line in the movie where he goes, the gypsy, he haunts me. And Django will always do that. He will always be in my soul. But what it was is that, and he's so good. He's so good. It's so melodic. But what, what it was is very quickly, it occurred to me that there was this whole other subgenre of people that just did Django. And because I was interested in swing dance music, I was interested in all these American bands. I wasn't getting the Charlie Christian and the Freddie Green and the Alan Roos and stuff like that. I was just getting Django and these Django, these little Django kids. Now they're all grownups and are professionals and stuff, but these Django kids will outshred me from the beginning. I was like, oh, forget this, man. This is not fun. I don't want to get, I don't want to have my butt handed to me every time. I there is that, but it's also, if you've been to, I've performed at some of the, I've, I had my own festival in Berkeley for some time, but I performed at some of the other Django festivals. It's kind of like a big Star Trek convention. I don't mean that in a positive way. It's just a, it's a little too much focus on Django himself. I mean, there's a whole world of music and I know that it's called a Django fest, but there's also Grappelli, you know, it's that they go together to, to use your idea of chocolate and peanut butter. It's Django and Grappelli and Django loved hot jazz and people do not talk enough about how Django and Stefan were influenced by Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti. Yeah, it, that that kind of like um, insularness of it, because like one of That's the things right. that I am not into, not that there's anything wrong with it, but it's like does not speak to me is any of the kind of post Django gypsy jazz that does not speak to me. I am Borelli Legren will always be a better musician than I ever will be, but I'm not interested in that being introduced with fusion influences. That's the part of the thing that does not interest me. So 
the combination of the super shredder thing and then the sort of like the various things out of the Django diaspora that aren't interesting, like a thing that I always thought was really special was the Django part of it. And then the, those hot jazz underpinnings, those American influences. And, you know, at a certain point, you can't just listen to your influences. If you want to understand them, you have to listen to their influences too, and try and get a little bit of, of that in there. Hot jazz does not interest me as much as Benny Goodman and Count Basie and Charlie Christian, all that stuff do. But like, you have to listen to it and try and get it. And I have to try to understand Eddie Lang in a way that if it was just Eddie Lang, I, I would maybe would be not quite as into, but I, it's all part of this lineage. And I think that's one of the things that the kind of jazz manouche community could do better at is being reminded of their past because the harmonic innovations of later jazz that's fine if you want to play with them. But I think if you start there, you don't really learn how to play the way Django believe of it. And that's the thing that made it so special. The worst is when they just put all these kind of Dorian minor sevenths all over everything. It's like, no, man, you're robbing the kind of the thing that makes it special. Otherwise, it might as well all just be so up by Miles Davis. But I was just at Django in June and I had actually a really lovely experience because that's a festival that's in its like 20 something of the year. And they brought me in specifically to have something besides just straight Django or straight latter day Manoush sure, sure. and, and to bring back that hot jazz underpinning or so that American kind of plain old swing with a capital S influence. It was funny because it was one of the, I was told it was one of the most well-attended classes at the session, just because they've taken a La Pompe class for 20 years straight, some of them. And, uh, and so it was, it was fun for them to kind of bring that influence in as well. But that's sort of why I personally started phasing it out. And the other thing was I have a lot of bands and they're all concurrently running. I lead them all. So like they all technically exist, even if some of them haven't well, done a gig in a while. The word on the street is that you have eight bands. That's what, that's uh, what they're saying now. on the street. It's not, it's nine now. I, I realized we just added the trio uh, as a, as a new thing. At a certain point, it was very frustrating because no one seemed to care about what band it was to them. It was a lot of the, our, our audience, it was whatever. And I was like, no, it's very important that it's, this is the two horn band with four piece rhythm and a female vocal. This is the full big band. Okay. This is our Benny Goodman sextet style band with no vocalist drum uh, vibes and clarinet instead of two horns. At a certain point, one of the events that we were playing regularly they were like, we need one more night of music that's not the same band. I was like, okay, fine. Well, I have a big band. We can't afford the big band. Fine. Okay. I have an 11 piece band. We can't afford the, okay, fine. So I had, I started a Django band. And so I have a Django band that we have done probably 20 or 30 times over the last 10 years. And it, it's fine. It's lovely. And I love to play in that world for a night. Um, but especially once that started to be its own thing, I decided that I was going to play the appropriate guitar in the appropriate band for the sake of visual, of, as a visual cue. I'm not going to bring the Manoush guitar to the Campus 5 gigs because we're not doing that anymore. Now that's going to be in this umbrella. Okay, now uh, I'll play my national. I'll play that in my 20s. At a certain point, I actually started a, a kind of 20s, 30s type Vince Giordano, Dean Mora, Don Neely style kind of 20s, 30s band, because I needed to serve that thing too. And so I would just play my national tricone in that and wouldn't play that on the other gigs. And so that way I could like visually differentiate them. But we just stopped doing the Django thing because there's a million people that do Django 
either better than Django or they're super shredders. But I did find it funny that from the dancer's perspective, I would get feedback that like, yeah, I, I actually don't like dancing to Django bands, but I like dancing to yours. And I noticed it was because I wasn't that good at it. So I had to like stop and have breaks and breaths and phrasing. Yeah. Whereas if you can just kind of shred through everything, there's never any, never any rests and you don't syncopate on just strings of eighth notes. You don't, that's not where dancers are motivated to feel the rhythm. They feel it in the stops and the breaks and the syncopations. So because I'd been listening to swing band records, um, there's, there's a, a piano player here in Los Angeles that played with Janet Klein, who's another kind of twenties. I know twenties. Yep, Jan, Janet Klein and her parlor boys. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Brad Kay, who played with her for many years and probably still does sometimes. We were jamming at some jazz festival in the lobby and he said, man, you really sound like a swing band when you solo. Cause I was just phrasing like shout chorus riffs and it's because, yeah, that's what I listened to. I didn't grow up listening to Benny Moten and this, and I didn't grow up listening to Big Spiderback. I grew up listening to like all of these swing band records. Those are the vocabulary pieces that I have. And it's just funny because you put that into a Django filter, it's still going to be more danceable and rhythmically inspiring in that way than just a straight kind of shreddy version of a Django. The shred thing with the world of the Django world is it's out of control. Uh, to me, the, you want, the music comes first and the overall feel and sound of the band rather than, hey, look at me. I mean, we went through that and this predates you. Or you were very small or probably predates you. The, the shredding in the rock guitar oh, sure, world, of the, course. The, the metal world, it just reached ridiculous gunslinger proportions. It was so yeah. out of control. And, oh, yeah. And I mean, that, that was one of the things that always... I, I, we, when I was growing up as a rock guitar player, I always wanted to be really learned in the kind of history of the music and the arcs of it. And that kind of whole thing of moving from the sixties and the Hendrixes and the pages and the Becks and the Claptons and all that stuff through the seventies. And then taking that up a notch, you have like Pete Travers and all these kind of guys. And then it's like, oh, boom, there's this Eddie Van Halen revolution that happens. And then you've got the Vies and the Ingves and the Satriani's and then all of the copycats. And the, I think that's actually like the big, I would say is like in almost any major city in America, there's like an army of Django bands and many of them are populated by these like super shredder cats, which is like great, like bless them. But the best of the best guys, you know, somebody like Duva Duvaniski or, or somebody like that or Roman, who I just saw at Django yeah, and Chew, yeah, and like yeah. not, not the Roman, but Roman. I, I know who you're talking yeah. about. Yep. I was like, oh yeah, no, no, you guys are like real artists. You can really burn, but you actually have breaths. And obviously Dubet is like the most Django of the Django cast. He's like so traditional. And then Roman can do a lot of different things and, and loves playing arch tops too. But you know, you're like, oh yeah, like you guys have chops that can like light the place on fire, but like they're used appropriately. And it's just that, like that next tier down where it gets a little bit ridiculous. So it's like, ain't nobody listening to beat it by Michael Jackson and being like, hmm, that guitar still had a little bit too much chops in it. It's the next tier down where they go. Yeah, maybe this second or third generation hair metal band, the guitar solo was a little too wanky for anybody's taste, you know? Um, but I think, I think that's the thing is like in, in Los Angeles, the gigs that I would be competing for as a side man, it's like, there were these little children that were just like shredding me out the door. I was like, no, this isn't fun. So I put that aside and I really focused on the Charlie Christian thing, which I'd already always really loved. And then at a certain point, I really started trying to dig more into the chord melody the acoustic chord melody thing coming from guys like Carl Kress and Dick McDonough and George Van Epps and obviously Alan Roos. But 
with that kind of stuff, like there are Charlie Christian transcriptions available and I had learned a bunch of them and I'd really worked that vocabulary into my playing. But the Alan Roos stuff, there's nothing out there. There's almost nothing out there. And what little I found was, was mostly wrong or, or at least wrong in a way that like hid the meaning and hid the kind of structure of it. I, I so, totally get it. And, and I think that's uh, a big reason why, why you're growing so much in popularity and, and we're all watching you become famous because what you do, it might be funny to you, but believe me, we all know, everybody knows about what you're doing. Have you heard this guy? I, I discovered you off of a, a YouTube thing, playing at Norm's. Oh, yeah, guitars. sure. And Norm is a big fan of a lot of people. And the, the way he introduced you, I was just like, damn, that is, it's so fresh and so new again. It's just if, if you've heard guys solo with octaves or get this horrible kind of slurpy electric guitar tone, I know what you know, that you know yeah. what I'm talking about. And then you hear that, and then it's also not Django. And I've, I've, I go in and out of the Django thing myself. And I think many people do. I can only take so, so much of it. I love it. I will always love him. And I'm so grateful for him and what he's done for guitar playing. But Alan Ruth, that's, it's not new, but it's kind yeah. of fresh. The funny thing is, so I started working on that chord melody stuff, and I would do sort of an impression of what I thought it was. And I basically built up 10 years or maybe even more of this chord melody style that I'd invented thinking I was doing Alan Roos, not realizing all of the things that make Alan Roos special and unique. I was actually failing to get any of them or almost any of them. And it wasn't actually until the pandemic that um, I really made the breakthrough to really learn Alan's stuff. And so Alan's story, I was funny. I, I wish I had been better prepared for that Fretboard Journal podcast to like introduce Alan Roos, but he was basically this cat who was in Benny Goodman's most famous right. band that, that became famous. And he had been George Van Epps's student. And Van Epps played in that kind of chord melody style and was one of the, probably the second best guy maybe. But Roos was just his student and being a little bit younger, he just swung a little bit more and he had the influence of this band around him. But after leaving Goodman's band, he ended up going through a bunch of different bands and doing various different all-star sessions and eventually landing in Los Angeles in the mid forties where there's a bunch of all-star studio stuff where he's just got, oh, there's eight bars of crushing chord melody solo. Oh, there's a whole chorus on this one. Oh, okay. Hear about it with this. Oh, he gets an intro over here, but you have to like piece it all together. And there's no CD you can buy that's got the best of Alan Roos because no one's ever put it together. Well, whereas like Charlie Christian, you can go buy that four CD box set or yeah, the yeah. digital equivalent and, um, and it's no problem. Uh, and you get the other four CD one house, all the live stuff. And you're like, pretty much that's it. But I had to collect all this Alan Roos. And so, like I said, I'd, I'd done an impression of it where, um, you know, I might do stuff. It was very block chord, like the way a piano player plays block chords. Like I realized that guys like Carmen Mastron, he would play a little bit more just on the beat or upbeats. And you're like, okay, that's cool. Doing that with chords is really hard. That's great. But then you think of somebody like Roos and you're like, Holy crap. What was that? There's a lot more going on with the Alan Roos stuff. It's, yeah. it's more ornate. Yeah. And that's the thing that sort of makes it because he's able to play melodic lines that sound like a single note solo, but carrying the chords underneath it. You mentioned my pinky. The funny thing is when I play single notes, I barely use my pinky. So it's literally that my pinky only comes into play when I'm doing the chord stuff, because the idea is you're fretting a chord with your first two or first two and three fingers or whatever you need. And then it's a, whatever fingers are free are sort of hammering on to get some other notes besides just the notes in the chord. The thing about Alan Roos that I didn't get 
before was I was playing these chord solos and then I was trying to do a lot of solo guitar. And in solo guitar, you have to lay all the harmonic pipe. If a two resolves to a five, you have to resolve that one leading tone down. Otherwise, no one hears the two five. So if I'm going to go from D, uh, D minor seven to G seven, like I have to change this note to there. Otherwise, no one's going to hear it. But the thing about Alan is his solos were always in a band. The bass player and the piano player or whoever else is carrying that harmonic weight. So he would play these voicings that were sort of agnostic to exactly which chord. And the, the crazy thing is, these three notes that you land on in the middle, it's sort of F major seven, but that's also a C6. And you're like, it's a one chord. It's a five chord. It's both. It doesn't matter. Like able to sort of like swish and slide around in a way where the kind of voicings in the middle almost don't matter and because they go both ways. Once I sort of realized that, and then I realized the way that his appoggiaturas and all that Baroque stuff he was adding, that stuff really made it feel like instead of just that, like I'm playing single notes and an eighth note, sometimes kind of these block phrases, it was like, he's really swinging it. And I've been working with this trio recently to kind of feature that style, this trio thing that I've been doing. It sort of came about because there's a lot of people that learned about me from the internet. Maybe you saw me on one of those norms videos or an Instagram thing. And they don't want to go to a dance studio to, to, for a swing dance. When I play in my swing dance band, like the job is not for me to get to play cool guitar solos. The job is to make the people that are dancing happy. And I try to throw some cool guitar solos in, but I don't solo on every tune. And I can imagine for somebody who's just a kind of fun guitar nerd that likes a lot of different things, they're not up for that. And this trio that I've been doing is like the perfect distillation of what I do down into a format that they can really dig and get a lot of that guitar. But it it's li a little bit lighter load than me having to do solo guitar and manage to keep their attention. I've got a clarinet, a bass player to keep things going. I think the next thing that people will probably see is we're probably going to do a, a trio CD uh, at some point soon, because I'm really excited to share that with people. And there are all these little out riffs that I, because I want the trio to not just be like a jazz odyssey where it's play the head, do solo, play the head. Is that the trio with um, Dennis Chang and the clarinetist or? Yeah. So that, that's what we did at Django in June. And the funny story about that is they had asked me to do the concert. We never really came back to figure out what that was going to be. And I just taught at Matt Munisteri's Red Hot Strings Camp. And that the concert for that was just like every, all the teachers on stage and we all would all come up with little feature tunes, but like. Everybody was there the whole time. And then I realized, oh no, you want me to do a 45 minute set for a concert hall. Okay. Who can I use? Whoever's here. Okay. So I guess all the teaching staff, I can dragoon into this. And I, I'd known Dennis cause we worked together on, on a project for his uh, music school. And then I'd never met Giacomo uh, Smith. And I was just like, Hey, could you, could you do this concert with me? Sure. Yeah. That sounds great. And I'm a charts guy. I have charts for everything. And I said, I've got charts. I was giving you, he's like, no, I'd prefer to learn it. Like, okay. I got about half an hour, maybe 45 minutes of rehearsal with him to sort of learn some licks and some little arrangement cues. And then we didn't get the chance to rehearse till with Dennis till sort of like the day of. And then we only got, I think maybe 20 minutes here and then 20 minutes there at sound check. And it was like, it was a, it was super loosey goosey, but the proof of concept was like exactly what I was hoping for, which is. I did half electric and half acoustic. So people got both sides of the Charlie Christian thing that I love, but then the Alan Roos thing. And I wanted to 
like when I'd done solo guitar concerts, I'm not Tommy Emmanuel. I can't hold an audience by myself for that long. Not many can. Not many can. Exactly. Exactly. And so I was like, and, and also, do I have to know the melody and phrase the melody of every single song? No, I need a horn player that can like take half the work and I'll take the A section on this one. You take the bridge and then, okay, on this one, you got the A's, but I'll jump in on the bridge just to keep the textural shifts happening. So it's not just a monotone. And same thing with let's have an out riff on this or some kind of like four bar riff that's a send off to do then four bars of bass or something just so that it has structure and it feels like intentional. And we managed to, I, I was thrilled with how that concert came out. There's a video on YouTube of it. And I've just started doing it at home now with the regular musicians that I work with at home. And we just did a concert two nights ago and I was like, yes, this is working. It's a really fun format and it's uh, it's really cool. But some of these out riffs, there's a, Benny Carter had this out riff on Honeysuckle Rose. It's like kind of the Django thing, but it has this beginning part. And then I realized, oh, I can crib that with the chords actually. And like little, just having the little things like that. The fact that the Roost style, you can actually play vocabulary, like that's bonkers. As far as doing block chord stuff. So what you've done is you've taken these two very disparate things and they, there's a commonality there. The commonality is not in what they sound like because they have these two very different things. Like Charlie is all of these great eighth note and triplet lines and syncopations and blues stuff. And then Roos has all this filigree. But the crazy thing is the commonality is that they're both based on these geometric patterns. So it's all shapes overlaying the Alan Roos brokenness over this grid of Charlie Christian kind of licks I already have, I visualize the fingerboard in exactly the same way. So it's, I'm able to kind of code switch between these two very disparate accents. And so you say Baroque because it's so ornate? Ornate. Yes, exactly. It's not Bach. It's not actually Bach from the Baroque period. It is ornate. (laughs) So Charlie Christian rest stroke picking? Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe so. And I, I think like a lot of people, reststroke picking is an ideal and it's sort of the dominant way that a lot of pre-electric guitar music yep. was played. But I don't know that it was like this regimented thing that was only ever practiced in this perfect way. I think it was just the default way. And that like anything, there's parts where somebody ended up alternating, alternate, alternate picking something or doing something else. But it's definitely a way that gets you the volume out of the instrument. And that's the thing about Charlie is he was a first generation electric player. So he still phrased and played like somebody playing an acoustic who is now getting these fresh benefits of added sustain and added compression and added volume from being able to play an electric guitar. But he still phrased like somebody that was stuck on an acoustic and needed to project. I wonder if Barney Kessel was was that way as well. I think he started out that way and I'm not, I'm like I said, I'm not somebody that really follows what happened after the swing era. Cause I'm really trying to like, I, I don't want to be a preservationist about it. I'm sure at some point I did, but my goal is just that like swing music was this special thing. And then later jazz came along and it's a different thing. And there's all these things that changed that make it not swing music anymore. And the things that changed are the things that I liked about swing music the most, the rhythmic vocabulary, the harmonic language of it. I want to keep that. And then this other jazz sort of defaults to not that. There's so much condescension or ignorance of modern jazz musicians to anything before Charlie Parker. And so I'm sort of always fighting for the validation of swing music. And I honestly think 
if you watch something like Ken Burns Jazz, there's this not too subtle kind of implication that anything before Charlie Parker was, even if it was made by black musicians, it was corrupted by the white gaze in a way that made it not fully black. And I don't want to be too heavy handed about it, but I feel like that's the conclusion people draw from it. So they think that like, because Glenn Miller came along and had giant hits that now Count Basie is not good music until after Parker. And then, oh, the fifties Basie, that's fine. But the thing is like, I've done a lot of historical research on this stuff. And like all these black artists were making music for their own audiences on their own terms. And there are of course acts that did things that, that were maybe not great. And there are all these kind of things that we have to be aware of, but to assume that because like I said, white musicians got hits eventually that somehow the black music of before that era is not valid. It's it's so ridiculous. So I'm always trying to fight like, no, jazz didn't start in 1950. Jazz started in 1900, if not before. Um, I'm trying to validate kind of, if you read Gunther Schuller's The Swing Era, which is like one of the main books on written on the swing era, that's a guy that doesn't like Charlie Christian, except for the part on the bridge where he would start to proto-bebop. But the rest of the stuff he thinks is dumb, like all the swing riffs. And I'm like, wait a second, you don't even like the thing for what it is. Why are you writing a book about it? Well, I only like the part of it that's turning into the next thing. Around here, what I find, everything levitates to bebop. It's just, it's the musicians. So I like the stuff that Alex Mendon plays. I like very much. I like the stuff that Matt Tolentino plays. These are folks, if you don't know who that is, check these wonderful musicians and and their bands and orchestras out. But the musicians around here, they want to play bebop. They want to play hard bop. They want Brazilian. They're all into that. Anything else prior seems corny and and arcane. And I am of the mindset that is so far from the truth. You know, it's just, um, I guess it's a personal taste thing. I just, a lot of modern jazz leaves me very, very cold. Well, I think, I think it's also an aesthetic thing because before bebop, jazz was also the pop music of the day pop music of its time and and you know if you think of like you think in terms of rock music you're like okay whether it's power pop or punk pop in the 90s or you think of a band bands in the late 60s that were riding that line of like writing hits versus rocking and like trying to find there's that there's that tension there between serving the music and also trying to have a hit and like you know that's a thing but i mean you really got me by the kinks is absolutely pop music, but it's also absolutely rock music. I think anything that Benny Goodman did so often or, or Cap Bass is like, yeah, sure, it was pop music, but it was also 100% jazz and swing. And it's just a, it's a different aesthetic because everything post-Bebop has this sort of cool thing as it's not trying too hard in this way, even though when it, it's constantly trying too hard, but the aesthetic of it, it's cool. Whereas well, like you know, My- Miles Davis turning his back on the audience yeah. and playing, it's just, it, the whole thing is cool. Yeah. And I, I like, personally, I like hot jazz. Well, but yeah, I, but we're also like exuberant. And the thing about exuberance is it's, is, it is exposing oneself and being vulnerable because you're being like, Hey, I'm excited about this. Are you excited about it? And if they're just like, yeah. now you've put yourself out there. Whereas if you're sort of detached in a way you're protected. And I think that there's something about that that makes it easier. Very interesting that the whole psychological thing. Now, I got all these charts from Don Neely and trying to find musicians around here. And I'm still in the throes of it. But a lot of people think it's the music that I like. It's corny society mm-hmm. music. The charts are fucking complicated, though. Right. And, they're re- and they're really long. 
Thank you for letting me know we can swear on the podcast. There were several places where I pulled my punches, but uh, yeah. And that's just it. There is music from that era that's corny and sucks. There is me like, of course, like that's fair, but that doesn't mean all of it is. And I just hate when I I tell people this all the time, just because Glenn Miller sucks doesn't mean that Charlie Christian isn't good. Lester Young was not pulling any punches for the white gays. Lester Young was playing exactly what he wanted all the time. Such a beautiful player. Yeah. Charlie Parker isn't any more untethered. He's not any more unshackled. And I'm using that as a sort of a double entendre, which I think was what sort of that, not to put down that, that documentary, because it's one of the great things about jazz, but I think there's this trend in it that says that anything before bebop is compromised and that Charlie Parker was a great emancipator of jazz in a way. And in a lot of ways, the bebop era was the time when it started to not be pop music anymore. But early bebop was certainly au pop music to the literati. And they weren't, they were, they wanted hits too. It's just at a certain point, you're not going to get a ballroom of people all moving to something that becomes so much more esoteric. But that bop period where it's overlapping, you have, you have Big Sid Catlett playing drums on Charlie Parker sessions or Tiny Grimes on a Charlie Parker session. Those are swing players with a capital S but they have this bop overlay and that, that's super fun. I'm always finding that when I write songs, I'm landing at this like 1944 sweet spot of like post, just post-war small groups and a little bit of flirting with bebop, but it hadn't taken over yet. And I keep trying to pull it back to 1939 or 1941, but I keep missing by a little bit and hitting 1944 because well, I a... love that stuff too, but it's still got the spark. It's still got the fire. Absolutely. There's a spot in history where art and popular taste coincide. And I'm very interested in that. But some bebop, I just feel for so many people, it's for musicians, because it's such a challenge to to be such a a great bebop player. They've studied it and that's what they teach in the music schools now. It's so much that. And also the funny thing is, I don't even think they really teach bebop, like bebop with a capital B. I think they teach just generic straight ahead jazz. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah, no, but the fact that we think of it as bebop is giving it too much credit. And I, because I say this, I literally say the same thing, but God, if they were actually learning Bud Powell heads, I'd be thrilled, but they're not. They're given this. And again, I'm throwing shade on somebody that probably doesn't deserve it, but I have no other way to express it. But like, it's like the Jamie Abersoldification of jazz where every chord is its own chord scale island that has nothing to do with the chord before it. And when I look at a tune, like take the A train, I'm like, it's in C, the songs in C. You just play in C, but when you get to the D7 chord, don't hit an F natural and maybe hit an F sharp instead. But you could go that entire song without playing an F of any kind and it would work perfectly. And that's how every swing player thought about that song. It's an, avoid, it was, it's an avoid tone. You just don't play the F or the F sharp. Just stay it, off it, of it. Exactly. But now they teach them, you play a C Ionian and then D Mixolydian and then G Mixolydian. That fucks a person up. Okay. Right? You know, I, I mean, pardon my French, but it's it just so many guys. And I see another thing here. Just, I see a lot of people playing at restaurants and so forth, and they've got the fake book, the real book. They'll never learn the songs. They'll never internalize the songs. And I realize with a big band, for example, you need the charts. You need, or it'd be chaos. Yeah. But with a small ensemble thing, learn some songs learn the tunes may get them internalized be part of the music yeah i'm so guilty of that on one of the gigs that i do i often play at a dixieland gig or a kind of new orleans style jazz well more of a chicago jazz band 
on, on Wednesday nights and I'm the only chordal instrument. There's plenty that I can infer from what the horns are doing, but there's a lot of time where a two comes up and I can't tell whether it's a big two or a minor two. It's, I can't really tell from nobody's playing the note that will tell me which one it is. And I'm being depended on to provide that. So I have to know, is it a D7 or is it a D minor seven? I, ha I have to know exactly what's happening. So I have to have my book out because I do not actually know Muskrat Ramble off the top of my head. I just don't. Like, I know Royal Garden Blues off the top of my head. I know many other songs, but like when they call that one, I have to pull it up. And, but my thing is, if you have the fake book out, okay, I get it. Especially if you're in a setting where you have to know it and you can't, like if I was on a band with a piano player, I just listen to the piano player and figure it out from them. But if I'm the only chordal instrument, I have to know. And my, but my goal is basically if I'm looking at it past the first or second chorus, I failed and I need to like pull your head up and all right, do you need to think about what this is? And that's actually one of the things I talked to the campers at Django in June about when we were talking about rhythm guitar stuff. Cause it's, it's funny, we did four days of classes and it was four days of a rhythm guitar class in the morning and then ostensibly a chord melody class in the afternoon. And I had worked really hard to structure the chord melody one and, and step it out over the course of days, but we still had people coming and going that were there some days, but not others. It ended up being just kind of this potpourri at times of like stuff that came up. And one of them was like, you need to understand the function of what these songs do. You need to understand what it means for Rose Room to be a big two to a five to a one. And then the fact that the last eight bars where it goes four, four minor, one down to the six, two, five, one, that's 200 songs. That's, yeah. and that's the exact way that, that I can't give anything but love ends. It's the exact way that all these other songs, but you need to know, oh, they're doing one of those into a, one of those into a, one of those. Okay. So it's a triple axle into a Lutz into a thing, like whatever the, whatever your metaphor for it is, it's like, these are all just standard moves and standard modules. And you want to be able to see them when they come up in a different key or in a different song and go, oh, they're just pulling one of those. Oh, I got it. That, I agree so much with that. And my old guitar um, teacher, Jimmy Luttrell, who played with Spade Cooley, played with Lawrence Welk. I would refer to when I explain his really remarkable skill set, he has a full set of musical playing cards. He knows all the changes. There's, there's nothing you're going to play that's going to surprise him. He's played all the songs. He knows all the moves uh, in addition to his um, compositional um, abilities and his, uh, dare I say it, shred abilities <laughs> on the guitar. He just he knows the different moves, the different pieces that make up this music that, that we both love so much. So if somebody's going to start exploring Alan Roos or exploring Charlie Christian, what recordings would you point them to? Well, I, I mean, thankfully, so Charlie Christian, if for anybody that doesn't know, had this very Jimi Hendrix-like career where he died after two years of being in the public eye. He'd, he'd been playing and, and had been getting some notoriety in Oklahoma City, like Mary Lou Williams was already a fan and had told John Hammond about him. But he'd been getting a little notoriety, but just this kind of regional notoriety. And so it was in the fall of 1939 that he joins Benny Goodman's band and it's night the the summer of 1941 he takes ill so it's it's literally not even two full years and he it, in the way that Hendrix had this like four-year career in the right. public eye as the great Jimi Hendrix it was just this revolutionary thing where everybody just immediately was like holy mackerel because you have all of these bands immediately have to get electric guitars and you listen to People like Herb Ellis, you talk Chuck Berry, B.B. King, whatever. 
they all talk about hearing Charlie Christian for the first time, Jim Hall hearing, like they all talk about it as this revolutionary thing, but because it's this two year period and because he was in a name band, there's not actually that much stuff outside of it to collect. So there's a four disc box set on Columbia genius, electric guitar that there's probably a digital version of that's easily streamable. But if you look up Charlie Christian on your streaming service, you'll be able to find almost all of his recordings. And then you can, there's many websites that have his disc- discography. So you can find the two Lionel Hampton all-star sessions he played on. You can find the Edmund Hall Celeste quartet that he played on uh, the Ida Cox session the, the, there's, you can find all the air checks that the Benny Goodman sextet did on uh, live in the radio. Um, that's very easy, relatively speaking. Alan Roos is 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 much more challenging. On YouTube, there's one playlist you can find, Alan Roos, my favorite guitar player, and it's got a lot of his recordings. But the thing is, he's on a billion recordings over from when he joins Goodman in 1935 to the end of his studio career in like the 70s. He's on the- Oh, he was pretty long-lived then. Yeah, he died in 1981 and, or 1989. Oh, wow. I can't remember. Anyway, but- like he he was a studio guy, so he's on a million soundtracks and stuff. If you've ever been to the Disneyland, there's the Haunted Mansion ride, and there's this famous song, Grim Grinning Ghosts, that plays the ride. He's playing rhythm guitar on that. It's just like this ridiculous 60s thing, but like he's a studio cat. You do what you're you need to with along with like Kessel and Tedesco and all those cats. But he left Goodman's band after in the middle of early 1938. And so he's on a ton of recordings, like several discs worth of recordings. The problem is there's only three guitar solos. So you got to go through four years of one of the biggest bands in America making as many recordings as they possibly can to find, if I could be with you one hour tonight, Rosetta and and Love Me or Leave Me. And the, the other two, the latter two, there's only a, an eight bar bridge. So you really barely get it. And then, okay, so then after that, he was doing some teaching in in new york and then he went with paul whiteman and there's one or two things where you can hear him play a short solo with paul whiteman swinging strings and then okay then he's with jack teagarden he gets a feature song called picking for patsy but that's not really a that's not really a solo thing where he's burning so it's oh man where are you gonna find this stuff but i will say there's there's a podcast called jazz focus that a sax player i know out of boston or I think he's out of New England. We're internet friends, so I I feel bad that I can't remember exactly where he's from. But he actually, at my request, did a podcast on Alan Roos. And so his podcast, Jazz Focus, you can find it wherever you find podcasts. There's a whole episode of Alan Roos, and that's probably the single best compendium of all of his stuff. Okay, that's great. That's really great. My, My listeners will really be glad to hear that piece of information. And before we go, can you tell us what you're up to lately? At the end of the year, I will go to lead many of the bands at Lindy Focus in Asheville, North Carolina. And what crazy thing about that is that's the five nights that lead up to New Year's. And every night is a full three sets of music with one band, followed by two sets of late night with another band. The first three sets are going to be dedicated to some historical band. So I, I think my friend Keenan is leading a, an Al Cooper and his Savoy Sultans thing where he's going to play all of that repertoire. Then that night, I'm going to do all of Charlie Christian's repertoire over two sets. And then the next night, it's like the Count Basie. I'm going to do a whole night of 30 tunes of Count Basie. Then the next one's Chick Webb and Ella Fitzgerald, because she took over his band right after he died. This crazy deep dive, when it's called Lindy Focus, it's really the most music-focused of any swing dance event. That's super exciting. 
My, ja- jazz lovers dream come true with that. My gosh. I mean, it is. And the, the crazy thing is ordinarily when I play a dance gig, if the people aren't dancing, I've failed. But if I have succeeded so spectacularly that they have <laughs> to stop dancing, it's actually a pendulum that goes all the way around. Part of my whole mission and all this stuff, I learned this from Dean Mora, that he didn't play the top 40 of 20s, 30s stuff. He went for deep cuts. And sure, he would play stocks that a lot of other bands in that style have. But he would also pick more obscure tunes and keep those as the ones that were his signature things. And then he would ha- transcribe things that were special. So when I asked him to transcribe that Man from Mars tune, it was because that was a deep cut that was like a signature part of what we were about, which is we're not doing the obvious stuff. I'm never going to play in the mood. I'm not going to play Sing Sing Sing. I'm not going to play the Sui Generis of Swing. I'm going to go for all these deep cuts that have been forgotten. And at the time, things like the Benny Goodman Sextet or some of these all-star groups that were happening in 52nd Street in the mid-40s, that stuff was like pretty much ver- like nobody knew that stuff. And so the only versions of some of the songs we'd play on our records would be the original and then our re-recording of it. And then later that everyone in the swing world knew about all those tunes. So it was funny because the deep cuts we'd started with weren't deep cuts anymore. We keep having to, to dig and we only had to start writing original music at a certain point because at a certain point, if we're both going to play a transcription of the same Illinois Jackette small group recording, and the only difference is going to be that we improvise our solos and they improvise their solos, but the arrangement is literally exactly the same. You're like, okay, then what's special? What am I even offering anymore? Uh, We went to, we were playing in Bordeaux and I was so proud because I'd found this tune that was this cool all-star tune that Nat Cole had played piano on and Buddy Rich was on drums. It was called Black Market Stuff by Herbie Hamer, who was a sax player that isn't famous, but everybody else in the band was crushing. And I was so proud of myself and I was going to debut this tune and I get to Bordeaux and that was the title track of the other band we had to play opposite's oh, album. And I was like, wow. I thought that I was the, like the master of the deep cuts and you're pulling this out. Oh man. So we started realizing we had to sort of like write some original material. So we had stuff that was special or, or mark up our stocks in the way that we were talking about earlier. And th- that's been this crazy thing, but we ended up adding original material to it because at a certain point, at least that's something we can offer. And I don't, I say this on stage, like, I don't think of myself, there's an Irving Berlin, there's been a Duke Ellington, like we don't, we're done. We were fine. We could call it a day, but some friends of mine that are swing dancers were on this NPR podcast, kind of wrestling with some of the kind of racial issues inherent in doing this old thing and the legacy of all of that. And my friend, Latasha Barnes said, you can't keep a tradition alive by merely recreating it. You also have to contribute to it. And that's That's a very tricky thing to contribute to it in a way that doesn't change it into being something that now stops being the thing that it was. You have to to innovate within a tradition. I literally only wrote songs because I needed to give somebody license-free music or music that I could license to them. Because we were in this documentary, uh, Alive and Kickin', which is is a, a lovely documentary. I actually really enjoyed it. And when somebody does a documentary on your scene, for you to not hate it, or for you to not feel that they got it totally wrong is very rare. It's rare that they would get it so right. And the director did such a great job. But we're in the background of like a million of the scenes. Our band is playing while there's like a, what's called a jam circle when a bunch of, it's like the swing version of a soul train line where all the couples kind of spread out in a circle and then one couple will go in and do tricks and then pop out and the next couple go in. And like at the time, our big band would always close with jumping at the woodside. 
that's the song that's playing behind all these dancers. And so when you go to Warner Chapel Music as a film director and go, hey, I would like to license this for use in my film, they're like, that'll be $30,000. And you better believe like the estate of Count Basie no longer owns the rights to that. It's a holding company. So it's literally just people who are farming their own money that are making that. And so she had asked if I could come up with a theme and I, it was beyond me at that time. But shortly thereafter, I started having to compose because literally if I wanted somebody to use my music for a project, I had to give them the rights to it or give them something that they could reasonably buy the rights to for a non-egregious price. And then certain things just stuck. And he's like, all right, that'll stand up there. And there's a couple of tunes I've written that people seem to, every time I play them, they really like them. And I go, that was an accident. I'll take it. The guy that actually um, co-founded that event, Lindy Focus, he's a great bass player and, and started as a swing dancer like me as well. Michael Gamble, he's a great bass player and band leader. He writes these compositions that are really clever and very interesting and, and seem to always zig when you think they're going to zag in this very beautiful, delightful way. And I feel like we we do the opposite thing where I literally just go, yeah, no, I, I just hear it and I go, what's the natural consequence of what happen- has to come next? And he paid me this compliment where he's like, yeah, you, your songs sound like that's exactly how they were always supposed to sound. When Michelangelo or Leonardo or whoever it was talks about, oh, I'm just removing the parts of the marble that aren't David. You go, wow, that's wow. insane. But like when I come up with like, when I play like phrase one, I just think of well, what's the natural antecedent as phrase two. And it's not rocket science and it's certainly not the artistry of, of a David, but it's just, duh, what else could it possibly have been? And I find that there's something beautiful in that kind of natural thing of, oh yeah, that's of course what it would be. And that it feels comfortable. The tune he was talking about, people really respond to when I go, shoot, man, I just was goofing around during the pandemic, trying to come up with a solo guitar piece. And then when I made it for two horns, like it has this little thing. Oh man, what a mitzvah. I just lucked into that, but it was certainly not, uh, certainly not skill. I'm so glad that it got to happen. I'm so glad that you're writing and I'm, I'm so grateful that you've been on our podcast today. You know, it's just been a great treat for me and all my listeners. Oh, the pleasure's so, been all um, mine, man. And folks, so make sure you check out Jonathan Stout. There's so much music coming out of this guy, you're not going to believe it. We'll say goodbye now and see you down the road. Cheers, brother. This is George Cole with our show wrap-up. I'd like to thank Source Network Production with executive producer Mark Miller and production support from Pokey Huang. Also on this send, tech support from Sheila Swift. Signing off, and we'll see you next time on the Hot Jazz Network podcast. Hot Jazz Network.